I wish I had a better memory. I recently had to give a presentation in person. See, I got used to giving online presentations where I could constantly glance at my notes. Now, in person, I had no notes, no prompts. I had to memorize what I had to say. And it was hard. I remembered how bad my memory is. And I wondered, is there a scientifically proven way that I could improve my memory? See, when I try to learn something, I take the brute force approach. I just repeat what I need to remember as much as I can and hope that it goes in. Usually, this involves cramming in the hours right before my presentation. And I've learned over the past few years that that is an awful way to try and memorize something. Today, you'll learn the best way to boost your memory. You'll hear from a London cabbie who has memorised 25,000 streets in London. You'll learn why he literally has a bigger brain than mine. And you'll hear my attempt at memorising every single capital city. All that, coming up. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about memory, I thought I'd speak to someone with an incredible memory, someone who has dedicated years memorising every single street in London. Here's Tom, probably one of London's best-known taxi drivers. I'm Tom Hutley. Um, I'm 31 years old, London taxi driver. So in 2020, I had a bit of an identity crisis. Of course, you know, pandemic happens, stay at home, you're not allowed to go to work. So I'm thinking, whoa, if I can't drive my taxi, what am I? What can I do? So I got on YouTube and I was like, I'm going to make videos about taxi driving, you know, the nuanced stuff, you know, what are passengers like? 75,000 people subscribe to Tom's videos and over 6 million people have watched him driving around London. Most people who do watch Tom are surprised by something. They are surprised that he navigates London entirely without a GPS. Some cab drivers do use a GPS uh, in their cab, but it's more used as a tool. We're not being directed by it. Uh, My analogy I would always use is that if you look at a professional chef, they can go into the kitchen, they can make any sort of like, you know, standard kind of recipe and they can just do it by like intuition. I'll have a pinch of that, I'll do a bit of this, or I'm cooking for this person, I might change the recipe a little bit. Whereas the sat-nav, using a sat-nav is like going from a cookbook. We can all cook from a cookbook, but it might not turn out as well as what a professional chef does. And the professional chef's going to be more efficient, they might be able to get it done sooner, have that bit of flair about it. And that's what it's like being a taxi driver from day to day the same route i will take one day might not be the same the next day even 10 minutes apart you know because something might have happened on the street which then influences a small corner of london and then that then has knock-on effects across the rest of london so how on earth does tom navigate twenty-five thousand streets in london without needing a gps well he's studied something called the knowledge 
So I'll just introduce the knowledge of London. Um, it's capital T, capital K. It's um, fascinating. Even just the the name of it just sounds so uh, like prestigious. The knowledge. I'm like, wow. Um, and it's the formalised examination process that us London cab drivers has had since around 1851. Its roots go back to the Great Exhibition uh, held in Hyde Park during the reign of Queen Victoria uh, and Prince Albert. And basically the cab drivers, we, we've had taxis in London since the 17th century. We was first licensed by Oliver Cromwell. But taxi drivers would frequently get drunk. Uh, they would crash uh, their carts of horses and stuff. It was astonishing that we still have a taxi trade today based upon those hackney carriage drivers of the 18th, 19th century. So they brought in this formalised process called the knowledge, whereby they ha- the drivers had to learn uh, the streets that they were driving on. So if someone said, taxi driver, take me too, they would know exactly where they were going. Um, but yeah, effectively a character building exercise because of how long it would take to get your badge. Um, in those sort of days, back in the times of the Great Exhibition, it might have taken a year or so to do the formalised study to then eventually get to a badge. In my time, it took uh, three years and, and the average sits around between two and four years. And as we can allude to, that the knowledge basically involves learning just about anywhere within London, within a six-mile radius of Charing Cross, which is roughly the geographical centre of London. The knowledge is hard stuff. For most, it takes at least 34 months to complete and has just a 40% pass rate. It is rightly considered one of the most challenging examinations in the world. You need a very impressive memory to learn almost everything within a six-mile radius of the centre of London. So if you visited London, a six-mile radius, if you went north, that pretty much takes you up to Alexandra Palace. If you went south, that takes you down to like Crystal Palace. You know, talking southeast, we're talking like Lewisham, southwest, Wimbledon. Uh, If we're going out west, we're talking uh, Chiswick. East, you're talking Stratford, you know, northeast, you're talking almost Leighton. Uh, and then northwest is, is about Brent Cross. So it's quite a big area once you, you, you span it out like that. There's different uh, theories as to why it's six miles as well. You know, the, the old wives' tale is that um, it used to be back in the days of horse and carriage that that was as far as a horse could go without needing to be refueled. Um, you know, obviously having a refreshment break for the horse, I guess. But the... Um, some believe it's also the metro- it was the metropolitan boundary, like where the police boundary was uh, for metropolitan London at the time, you know, when it was instigated. But we've pretty much stuck with it ever since. And it's where most people would kind of call like, you know, the most greater or the most main part of London, I guess. And within that six mile radius, you could be asked about any road, even a tiny cul-de-sac on the outskirts of the city. We can technically be asked anywhere within London. So uh, an examiner could be very pedantic and say, look, take me from this specific small street cul-de-sac. Like uh, one I got asked down uh, in Wandsworth area uh, was like a random little community centre. It's called Neville Neville Gill Close. And it's like a very small cul-de-sac right near the Southfield Shopping Centre uh, down in Wandsworth. And it was just to prove that you've sort of been down there and had a look at it. Um, and that's an example of how, you know, how much if an examiner is just having a day like that, they can just be really pedantic and ask those really small places. It's not just the 25,000 streets that need to be memorised. It's tens of thousands of landmarks, too. So the examiner can ask absolutely anything. Streets, police stations, fire stations, mosques, synagogues, restaurants, hotels, squares, 
public parks, cemeteries, cinema, it just goes on and on and on. Um, obviously, just where everyone wants to go to. And sometimes as well, you know, when you get customers in the cab, it's a case of like, oh, can you do a left at the, you know, insert big establishment here? So it's not always just a case of someone might want to go there. They're just, you know, notable places that people use as references and waypoints. When you get onto the final stage, they expect you to learn topographical knowledge of London. So basically what's actually happening in London, because part of being a taxi driver is you've got to be up to date with the certain stuff that goes on, you know, like major events like the Chelsea Flower Show and stuff like that. So one of my examiners, he said to me, oh, um, I'm actually going to a, uh, a show tonight. I'm um, I'm going to see, um, it's, it's, the show's called An American in Paris. I've no idea what theatre it is. I've just got the ticket here. Um, do you know where, where that where it is? And I said, well, yes, sir. It's at the Dominion Theatre on Tottenham Court Road. And like Tom says, the examiners can be pretty brutal. All in all, the knowledge examination sounds like a fairly overwhelming experience. What's so different about it is that you have to go to, um, it's called an appearance. So the examination is called an appearance. And you have to go to uh, like a, an office. And it's, it's like going to see a GP, basically. You sit opposite a desk from the examiner. The examiner has a whole map of London directly in front of them. And you have to turn up in a suit and tie um, or, you know, very uh, formal attire if you're female. I've heard of people being turned away if they don't wear their tie, for instance. It's that serious. It's like you have to, yeah, suit and tie. Um, and nothing's left to chance. It's like, you, you know, I've got to make sure that I'm going to be there on time, that, you know, I'm well ahead of schedule, that um, I don't overdo the caffeine. Um, I make sure I'm well hydrated. And yeah, the examiner will call you in. You have to sit down in the chair and you have nothing but your brain to rely upon. And their oral appearances, you have to orally recite the route. So the examiner will say, well, take me from uh, Battersea Cats and Dogs home, and I'd like to go to the Dogs Trust. And you say, uh, yes, ma'am, uh, the Battersea Cats and Dogs home is on Battersea Park Road, um, obviously Battersea, and the Dogs Trust is on uh, Wakeley Street or Wackley Street up in uh, Islington sort of area. And then they say, yep, that's great. Now run it for me. And then you have to then orally call every single street from, you know, Batsy Cats and Dogs Home to the Dogs Trust. And they'll be, with their um, their map in front of them, they'll have a piece of string uh, on the map to basically ensure that you're going the most straightest direct route possible. Um, and it's called being on the cotton, you know, to make sure that you're as close to that line as possible. You might not ever drive that route in real life, but the whole idea of it is to prove that you have looked at every single you know, street to understand all the options that are available to you. It's about learning the map inside out, not learning how to be a taxi driver. Because in reality, when you get out in the cab, you... You're driving uh, on the streets. You've got to factor in things like traffic lights and road conditions, etc. But for the purpose of examination, it's to prove that you've done your study and you know all the options that are available to you. And and that one question I've just explained there is just one question of four in an examination. You have to get four questions. You have to do four questions. They can dock you points based upon hesitation, not calling roads correctly, uh, going slightly wide, not knowing where points of interest are. You basically start on a certain amount of points and as the examination goes on, depending if you've hesitated, depending if you've not called a name properly and so forth, they can then start removing points. And if you pass below a certain threshold, you then get a D, which basically means, sorry, uh, you didn't pass the day. I've known of people that have taken seven years to get out. Some people have been like 10 years. It's it's insane. Um, everyone's knowledge journey is entirely different. You know, as an example, I had 13 examinations in total. Um, I failed two of them 
um, I think the minimum amount you can get out on is is twelve examinations, basically. So it's uh, it's a pretty yeah brutal system, but um, we wouldn't have it ever way because a lot of it is that character building exercise as well. The fact that because you've been on the knowledge for so long, it creates a higher caliber of driver. When you get your badge, you know the badge I wear. There's nothing I will do to risk or sacrifice that because that is my right to go and work and earn. Um, so. You ask any cab driver out there, you know, how long it took them to do the knowledge and are they proud of the achievement? They'll all categorically say, yes, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. Sinking so much time and effort into the knowledge makes taxi drivers and passengers value the service more. Sure, they could use a GPS, but the effort sunk into memorising all these routes around London makes the service more valuable. This is known as the sunk cost bias. I've been reading Stuart Sutherland's brilliant book, Irrationality, and there's a study in there that shows how sunk costs don't only change our perception, but our behaviours as well. In the study, overweight women were invited to take part in a new form of therapy for weight loss. They were required to carry out unpleasant tasks, such as reading nursery rhymes aloud, while the sound of their voices was played back to them after a short delay. Now, I'm sure most of you haven't done this, but this procedure induces stuttering. It's really off-putting. It makes it very difficult to speak. It's basically not something anyone would want to do. Half of the subjects perform this task for five hours, a really long time to be doing something as unpleasant as that. The other half did it for just 15 minutes. Both groups were told that this difficult activity would help them reduce weight. They were told it was some kind of psychotherapy that would help with weight loss. Of course, it didn't do this. It was pure placebo. But when you're told something by a professor in a white lab coat, you do tend to believe it. So one group sunk five hours into this therapy. The other group sunk just 15 minutes into the therapy. They were all weighed one year later, so one year after this task, which, as we know, shouldn't have reduced weight at all. The first group, who had spent five hours on the task, had lost an average of 6.7 pounds. The second group had lost only 0.3 pounds. Now, we know the therapy was completely worthless and had no connection with weight loss, but the group which had put a lot of effort into the task had to justify that effort to themselves. They therefore proceeded to lose more weight. Sinking so much time into something, even something completely irrational, changes your future behaviour. It's the case for dieters who stay committed to their diet and taxi drivers who stay committed to their trade. But the real question I had for Tom is how he memorised the knowledge. He told me off air that his memory isn't anything special. He actually joked that he forgets things all the time. He doesn't have some photographic memory like I probably would have expected. He's just a normal guy with a normal memory, just like me. So I wondered, can I copy Tom's tactics? And can I use those tactics to memorise something for myself, like every capital city in the world? Well, find out after this quick break. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. 
Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Back to the show. I wanted to know how Tom memorized every street in London. I needed to discover the tactics that he used. So I asked him how he did it. The the formalized process of beginning the knowledge is we have to learn these routes um, that are some in something called the blue book. Um, blue book used to be made up of about four hundred and sixty eight runs, I think it was, and then again, I think in the nineties or so, that got condensed down to three hundred and twenty runs. Now, the idea of this blue book runs is that they're just arbitrary runs across London that eventually crisscross their way. Uh, around London but if you draw a quarter mile radius at the start and end point of each each run obviously 320 runs uh, two uh, points of interest so one start one finish that's 640 quarter mile radiuses well in that six mile area that we spoke of they would eventually start overlapping or touching each other. It's almost like a Venn diagram of all these different circles. It's called the dumbbell effect. So you gradually sort of get exposures to the whole of London. This is really smart. Tom breaks down the whole of London, an overwhelming number of roads, into just 300 routes. Doing this makes the knowledge seem much more manageable. Rather than learning 25,000 streets, he learns 300 routes. Breaking down a goal into smaller goals makes the challenge easier to tackle. Katie Milkman talks about this in her book, How to Change. She shares a study led by her doctoral student, Anches Ray, which involves thousands of volunteers at a large nonprofit. Originally, the volunteers had promised to volunteer 200 hours of their time over a 12-month period. But after around six months, the researchers saw that many were falling behind. Many weren't volunteering enough of their time to reach the 200 hours by the end of the year. Knowing that facing such a massive goal can be demotivating, Katie changed what the volunteers were asked. Rather than saying you've got to volunteer 200 hours and you still have 100 hours to go, she changed the ask to get volunteers to commit to, say, four hours each week or eight hours every two weeks. So you don't say, can you commit 100 hours over the next six months? She says, can you commit to four hours each week? These two commitments equal the same number of hours, but when tested, she found that the smaller commitment, saying can you commit four hours each week, yielded 8% more time volunteering for the volunteers overall. Breaking down the challenge made people more likely to commit. And the Blue Book does the exact same thing for Tom. It's kind of just the start of, of the knowledge when you do the Blue Book. It's like learning a phrase book. So you have all these 320 routes that you can call across London. You have some understanding of London. And then as it progresses, you then move on to something called point to point. And that's where someone can give you any random location. And then you can then call to any other random location. You can start sort of making these little mental routes in your mind. It kind of just flashes up like a GPS. In terms of actually remembering stuff, the Blue Book's kind of one way of doing it because these are just kind of like 
I suppose it's they're kind of like doing lines at school. So you, you would call um, the accepted sort of practice of blue books is that once you've you physically go out and drive them you pen them up on the maps you can see what happens on the map and then you call them every day and that gives you your fluency so like your phrase book or doing your lines basically so that's one element to it um and it then means that you've got like this stock kind of pile of routes that you can always refer back to in an emergency or you know whatever something tom said there i think it's really important he says he calls the routes every day because it gives him fluency this sounds like a small thing but it's Arguably the most important thing you'll hear today. Repeating what you're trying to learn on a regular basis is really one of the most effective ways to memorise anything. This tactic has a name. It's known as spaced repetition. Ebbinghaus, way back in 1885, discovered that repetitions spaced in time produce stronger memories than repetitions massed close together. So Tom will learn far faster if he studies the blue book for an hour a day, every day of the week, rather than spending one day a week studying for seven hours. So spacing out your repetition is far more effective than grouping it. There is a lot of evidence behind spaced repetition. In 1989, Frank Dempster published a review of the scholarly literature. He looked at more than 100 studies. His conclusion was that space repetition is a highly effective means of promoting learning across a variety of settings and across many different types of materials and procedures. But why does spaced repetition work? In 2019, a team of researchers at Beijing University used scalp EEG data to get a picture of the brain during spaced repetition practice. They found increased activity in the frontal part of the brain compared to when people were doing non-spaced practice. So spaced repetition essentially increased the intensity of the practice in the brain. Not spacing your repetition dramatically reduces the activity going on in the brain. So cramming stuff into your brain just means your brain isn't actually working harder. It's, it's not working as much. Your brain fatigues if you study something for hours on end. Leaving a space between repetitions is necessary. In 2020, British researchers at the University of Leicester went even further. They constructed a custom-built web app that could personalise a repetition timetable of study materials about physics. The results showed that learners who did spaced repetition rather than grouped repetition ended up getting far better results in the exams. They found that learners who chose spaced repetition had an adjusted mean exam score of 70%, whereas those who preferred grouped repetition had an adjusted mean exam score of just 64%. So spaced repetition improved performance in exams by 6 percentage points. It's no wonder then that this tactic works for Tom. But spaced repetition is not all that he used. He still had a few more tricks up his sleeve. And then you have like just other stuff like picking up points of interest. You know, how do you get point? Points of interest are quite easy, really, I find, because they can be quite visual. And, you know, looking at general memory techniques, the most visual stuff is generally what sticks. Um, so I can always remember like there's a, a pub on Blackfriars Road. I, I think it's gone now, but it was called The Laughing Gravy. And it just it just sounds hilarious, like The Laughing Gravy. Like, what's that about? So the, things like that will always stick. The ones that are a little bit harder are things like road names or squares or nondescript areas. Um, for instance, I'm a bit I'm a bit terrible around the Marlebon area, like Baker Street, Gloucester Place, because it's a whole grid layout. 
and the grid's kind of all at the same. Uh, Kings Road and Fulham Road. I'm sort of terrible around there because, again, it's just one straight road of all these roads that intersect off it. But then you look at the city of London. If you look at that on the map, like, you know, around St. Paul's Cathedral and all that area, that is just this most iconic mash of streets that just has no rhyme or reason. And then you can physically see that in your mind. And that really helps with the memory process because it's really iconic it's visual and i just love sort of geeking out about it and just seeing all these different routes and strands and how it all moves around by visualizing all the streets tom is building associations in his mind and associations are a fantastic way to boost memory yeah sometimes the 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 name of the streets can really help um it's partially why i like learning a lot about the history of london now because i can mentally you know link all these street names together and you know what the different things are like in the city like um i was thinking about this earlier but bank junction it's quite an iconic road junction in the city where about five or six streets all intersect into one area directly outside uh the mansion house you know you have things like fred needle street well there's a hotel there called fred needles so there's a link and then you also have the i think it's the guild of merchant tailors uh, so if you think about a tailor fred needle you know put fred through the needle so they're like you make all these kind of little links and my brain's just like yes i made another one and uh, i still do it to this day i'll be driving down a street and i'm like i've never noticed that before and then it's just like well can't forget that now building associations and links boosts your memory wendy suzaki talks about this in her paper associative learning and the hippocampus This research paper is all about understanding how the brain forms new memories, specifically memories that link unrelated things together, such as a name of a person and a scent of a perfume. She found that certain neurons in the hippocampus changed their activity to improve memory. Importantly, these neurons only changed their activity when associative learning was used. In other words, building up associations and links helps us grow our hippocampus and improve our memory. Which leads to the question, of course, do London taxi drivers actually have a bigger hippocampus? Do they have bigger brains? I, I, did, I took part in um, a study for uh, University College London. The, um, they have a study called Taxi Brains, where they're actually scanning uh, the brains of London taxi drivers. Because it's basically based upon some older research. They found out that the, the brains of working taxi drivers, they have a larger hippocampus, which is the area associated with memory and recall. And that physically grows bigger as a result of the, doing the knowledge and driving a taxi they've now rebooted that study because they want to see if there's you know any link to you know having a larger hippocampus is that you know going to be preventive for things like alzheimer's and someone said to me like when did that study take place and i'm like oh i don't know it's probably a couple of months ago or something like that said, but i can tell you that it was in the basement i know exactly the room where it was and i know which orientation i was facing when i went in the mri scanner tom's memory is impeccable but it's not perfect That study Tom took part in involved scanning taxi drivers' brains as they orally recited a route through London. Specifically, the researchers looked at the structure of the cabbie's hippocampus. Like Tom said, previous studies had shown that taxi drivers have larger hippocampuses compared to non-taxi drivers, which is interesting because this is the region of the brain that shrinks in people with Alzheimer's disease. The researchers hope that by studying taxi drivers, they can learn more about how the hippocampus helps us navigate and how it's involved in the early stages of Alzheimer's. The results from this study could improve early detection and diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in the future. There are no results yet, but let's hope they find something. So 
Tom memorised every street in London using three specific tactics. He broke down the task into manageable chunks. Not 25,000 roads, but 300-odd routes. He spaced out his repetition, doing a bit each day. And he built associations with certain streets and landmarks. All of these tactics boosted his memory. He also discovered that sleep helped as well. I learned a lot about in terms of sleep. Like I read um, Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, whilst I was on the knowledge. That came out on just the right time. Because I was like, maybe if I cut out a little bit of sleep, I could have more time to study. And then that will then, you know, because I was basically consuming every hour of the day. I was working full time, but after work, I'd go drive into London, then I'd spend hours at the map. Then, you know, I just I didn't have enough time for it. And every, every knowledge student will say this, it, it takes over your life. If, you, if it doesn't take over your life, then you're not doing it properly. That's kind of like the, the, the saying, basically. So I was like, right, there must be some sort of shortcut here. I'll try and shortcut sleep. Well, I read that book and realized that's not going to happen. <laughs> if anything, get more sleep because obviously the memory retention you're going to have as a result of sleeping is going to be far more profound and have much better impact than, yeah, trying to shortcut sleep. Now, I've done a whole podcast on the benefits of sleep. It's called The Overlooked Productivity Hack that is backed by science. So you can go back and listen to that episode if you want after this. But one thing I didn't mention on that episode was the study on all-nighters. See, like Tom says, sometimes there's a temptation to cram all your studying into one night. But that simply won't work. In 2006, Matthew Walker conducted an MRI study to investigate the effects of an all-nighter on learning. He took a large group of individuals and assigned them either to a sleep group or a sleep deprivation group. So both groups started by remaining awake normally across the first day. And then across the following night, those in the sleep group obtained a full night's sleep, whilst those in the sleep deprivation group were kept awake all night. Both groups were then awake across the following morning. Around midday, they placed the participants in an MRI scanner and had them try to learn a number of different facts. So in the MRI scanner, they were trying to learn a load of facts, one at a time. Facts about capitals of the world, geography, all that sort of thing. And the machine took snapshots of their brain whilst they were trying to learn. After the learning period, both sets of groups were sent away. They were told, you can go and sleep if you want for the sleep deprivation group. And they had two nights to basically recover. They did this to make sure that any impairments observed in the sleep deprivation group were not confounded by them being too sleepy. So they wouldn't just be awful in this exam because they hadn't slept in 24 hours. They were going to go and do some sleeping, but they were just measuring if the all-nighter affected the act of learning, not the latter act of recall. So what are the results? Well, when they compared the effectiveness of learning between the two groups, the result was really clear. They were 40% less likely to be able to cram these new facts into their brain and make new memories. And that is relative to the group that obtained a full night's sleep. Matthew Walker writes that this is the difference between acing an exam and failing miserably. Good sleep, associative learning and spaced repetition are three incredibly powerful memory boosting tactics. To see how great Tom's memory really is, I asked him, to call a random route that I just thought up from Paddington to Battersea. Here's how he does. Paddington Station you come out of. If I'm coming out of the main taxi rank, you do a right under Bishopsbridge Road, you can ply by the roundabout, leave that by Harrow Road, not going to go over into the flyover, we go right and we go underneath the flyover. Which leads into now, listening to Tom already take me through all the roads in London made me really envious. It made me want to learn something myself. So I decided there and then that I would learn something. Using associations and space repetitions, I spent the following few weeks studying every capital in the world. 
Now, other than the sort of obvious capitals, you know, London being the capital of the UK, Washington DC being the capital of the States, I actually knew very few. But I was really confident that I'd be able to learn all of the capitals, even the capitals of Nairu and Palau. And after a bit of practice, I put myself to the test. So I had my partner Gemma read out the capitals to me, and I had to correctly guess what countries they belonged to. So here you go, you can listen to me tested on all 202 capital cities. Tokyo. Japan. Berlin. Germany. Yaren. Nauru. Bujumbura. Burundi. Honiara. Solomon Islands. Mazaru. Lesotho. Suva. Fiji. To learn all these capitals, I used space repetition. I studied the capitals on a flashcard app called Anki for 10 minutes every night. And as we know, that is much more effective than, say, three days of intensive studying, or especially more effective than an all-nighter. And I used associations and links too. So take the capital Georgetown. Well, to remember this, I would think that George is usually the name of a man, of a guy. So the country it belongs to must be Guyana. (laughs) That's one association I used. Or Yamusuruku. Well, yams have a white flesh. The sort of vegetable yam has a white flesh. White, it looks like ivory, so this must be Ivory Coast or Côte d'Ivoire. Those are the sorts of associations I would build up in my head. Now, I'm not going to force you to listen to all of this test. It is almost 20 minutes in length. But if you want to watch it all, you can. There is a link in the description to the YouTube video showing the full test so you can make sure that I wasn't cheating and you can play along yourself. But I'll cut back to the last 60 seconds of the quiz. At this stage, I had answered every capital correctly. Belize. Amsterdam. Netherlands. Baku. Azerbaijan. New Delhi. India. Naypyidaw. Myanmar. Muscat. Oman. Beirut. Lebanon. Managua. Nicaragua. Kuwait City. Kuwait. Wellington. New Zealand. Melikok. That would be Palau. Yes. Bangui. CAR, Central African Republic. Mbastel. That would be St. Kitts and Nevis. Rabat. That would be Morocco. Amman. Jordan. Islamabad. Islamabad is Pakistan. Moscow. Russia. Bissau. Guinea-Bissau. Caracas. Oh, come on, Phil. Think. Must be Venezuela. Okay, good. Valletta. Uh, Malta. Tripoli. Libya. Yes! Wow. Yes. So, I got all 202 right. Now look, this is not the hardest thing to memorise, but I was still surprised at just how easy it was. By following the simple tactics Tom had shared with me of space repetition and associations, I was able to memorise all of these capitals, and quickly too. In total, I only spent four hours reviewing these capitals in the app that I mentioned. I used to think that you were either born with a good memory or not, but I was wrong. A good memory isn't something you're born with, it is something you can develop. And if you follow Tom's tactics, you'll improve your memory much faster. Maybe you won't learn every street in London, but you can definitely memorise your presentation notes much faster. Okay, folks, that is all for today. Massive, massive thank you for Tom for coming on the show. If you want to learn more about Tom and taxi drivers and the knowledge, do go and check out Tom's YouTube videos. I've left a link in the show notes. Or you can just search Tom the Taxi Driver on YouTube. He's one of my favourite YouTubers. Give him a watch and I'm sure you'll see why.
Today, I've shared tips on how you can improve your memory, and I share more tips just like this each week on my Friday newsletter. To sign up to follow the newsletter for free, just head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. It's no cost, and you also get a reminder each time a new Nudge episode goes live. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew on there, or I'm on Twitter. I'm P underscore Agnew on there. Send me a message. Let me know what you think of the show. And perhaps you can even test me on a capital city. I promise I'll give my honest answer. I could do with a bit more spaced repetition. So that would be really helpful. Okay. Thank you everyone for listening. I'll see you next Monday for another episode of Nudge. Cheers.